Ladies, gentlemen, everybody, welcome to a very special episode of Media Voices in Concert with MX3. MX3 or Media Makers Meet organized MX3 AI, which took place in December in London. Now, it was a holistic look at everything to do with AI from a publisher's perspective, everything from how it's disrupting business models to how publishers are preparing for the vast changes that AI could potentially bring to their operations. MX3 brings together all the industry leaders, innovators, and mavericks from around the world, and you can join them for their next in-person event in Barcelona in March 2024. There's more on that at mediamakersmeet.com. But we were lucky enough to work with them on this, and we'd like to take the time to thank the sponsors of the event as well. So thank you very much to FT Strategies, Insurads, Labrador CMS, Miso, Subex, and Zawara. Now, there was just so much insight from across the day that we have had to split this episode into two parts. This first episode features lots of very big picture stuff from experts about where we're currently at with AI and where we're heading. Whereas the second, which will be released in the new year, is case studies of publishers getting their hands dirty with AI tech, what they've done and what you can learn from them. There's also an accompanying written report, which is going to go live on 19th of December. So we'll link to that from Voices.media or you can find it on MediaMakersMeet.com. The day opened up with an extremely big picture session. Ross Slate, who is Chief Strategy Officer EMEA at CINT, was in conversation with Michael Brunt, who is co-founder of HBM Advisory and the former GM of Times Newspapers, in addition to being publisher and COO of The Economist. Now, they spoke about AI as being a three-act play, and we're very much still in the first act, as he'll explain in a second. But he went on to explain what the subsequent two acts are going to be and how they're placing their chips to make sure they're ready for it. The first act which we're in right now is around productivity and efficiency. So how can we use AI in order to be able to augment uh, our current processes, speed them up, take away the menial tasks, uh, allow greater efficiency amongst uh, all members of that uh, value chain, basically. Um, so that's where we're right in there today. We're, we're barreling quickly into Act 2, which is hyper-personalization, which is the ability for AI to start to bring multiple different uh, modalities, multiple different uh, information together for you for your particular needs in response to a natural language question. So uh, all of the standardized ways of us getting information beforehand in the last you know, 20 years of digital has all been about human error and our error in terms of finding things out and going down rabbit holes. AI is going to do the work for us and hyper-personalize around that. That means everything can be aimed around the individual, right? And that has wide implications, not just in terms of content consumption, but also in terms of healthcare and individual healthcare plans and dietary plans and all those issues. And then the third act is because of that hyper-personalization, we're going to end up in a situation where we're going to see massive disruption to business models. Because the old ways in which business models are being built, uh, you know, and there's old, there's old aspects of things I talked about on stage about search uh, advertising and display advertising you know pages aren't there for the adverts to appear on in the same way how do they get brought to you you know are we going to have agents that are bringing personalized adverts to us ultimately that that whole revenue stream is up for for grabs right and that will happen in every other single sector uh you're not going to be in any way uh, avoid the disruption that will happen out of the business models that ai will bring So Ross believes that the next generation of business models will be fitting around people's personal needs, effectively using AI to power some of the trends that we've seen ongoing for the last couple of years. And so publishers are going to need to adapt to that. They're going to need to see beyond content and start looking at everything from transactions to personalizations and integrating all of that into one holistic package. Yeah. So, I mean, as a publisher, there's several things which need to be leveraged. Probably the first is trust. So I think that we're going to go through the first act 
uh, of productivity in the second act of hyper-personalization being uh, at a point whereby there's going to be a lot of dis misinformation out there. And I think people will absolutely want to go to places where they trust, uh, and I think that, that will be important. I think that as a publisher, you're going to need to understand that your, your role is as curator as much as generator. And so the curational ability of being able to allow people to delve into subjects that interest them, and also the curational ability of bringing serendipity as well as uh, you know, deep dives is really important. And I think that that, that, role, that role of editor, that role of curator is going to be needed more and more and more. And in fact, I see really agents as being micro-curators of things in the same way as we have influencers curating stuff today on social. We're just going to be automated in that basis without the human elements through the agent aspects of things. And then you've got to work out how you're going to get paid for it. So, um, you know, I think we've, we've all recognize that over the last 20 odd years that the movement towards individuals paying for something is probably the way forward in this basis, some form of subscription or membership or the likes. And I think we'll have the same issue when it comes down to agents, that those people will pay for a certain amount of trust and uh, the ability to be, have things personalized to them, and that will become a service that you will pay in the same way. That may or may not be commercially, uh, uh, have, have other commercial revenue streams like advertising, it may have uh, commercial revenue streams around transactions, but the most important thing is to be able to stake a claim in the curational space of, uh, to a particular audience for their particular needs and hyper-personalise around that to the individual's needs whilst also ensuring that you're bringing the serendipity that comes through normal media publications uh, across the world. That, that, that's what we still need, that right balance. But of course, none of this is possible without getting buy-in from the public and the audiences that publishers serve. And given what the public perception of AI is at the moment, the next session discussed everything from how we can move the needle on public perception of AI to whether it actually matters if we get public buy-in, provided we are doing things ethically internally. And so Tim Bond, who is Associate Director of Ipsos, asked, is awareness the key challenge to overcome initially? The, I guess the challenge is um, how much the general public will actually know about the AI that's being used, right? Um, and I think that gets us into the ethical conversations um, and actually some of the legislation that's out there already about transparency um, and actually all the, the data we've, we see within Ipsos but also in my previous role with the, the Data Marketing Association is that it's that transparency that's key. Um, so as long as people know what's going on or have a sense that they know what's going on, um, then they feel that level of control that they're more comfortable with it happening. Of course, Bond acknowledged that there are risks to do with AI. We've seen some, I want to say, sterling examples of what not to do over the past couple of months. But there are also opportunities for the publishers to get out ahead of those discussions and actually establish trust with audiences around their use of AI. Um, so yes, they, not everybody needs to love AI um, or generative AI, in, in, or AI in all its forms. But certainly that awareness of what's going on is going to be key. Otherwise, people are just going to push back against it. Um, and there is going to be an undercurrent of actually what's happening with my data. Um, am I talking to humans or not? Um, th those are really the challenges that, that we need to overcome. And now this next session asked a question which I really did not expect to hear asked at an AI conference. Do we have too much faith in the power of journalism, not just to deal with the potential influx of AI created misinformation and disinformation, but actually to use it in a way that delivers value back to audiences. So Alan Hunter, co-founder of HBM Advisory and the former head of digital at The Times and Sunday Times, explained. And I think we still put too much faith in the power of journalism. Uh, I wrote a piece on the next um, uh, the other day talking about how um, we believe our own life. We 
video for Highlanders why we talk a lot about bearing witness and uh, kind of speaking truth to power when often a lot of journalistic content is nothing of the sort. And indeed, people are noticing the, the, the figures tell the story. You know, news avoidance is at record level, particularly in the UK. Um, you know, print sales are going down, but before you tell me that's structural, have a look at the engagement stats on uh, digital proxies. Even some of the biggest digital publishers in the world have very few people visiting them on a monthly basis. It's quite shocking. Um, so there, we need to improve our journalism fast, I think, to, to meet these needs. I think it's also interesting that you know, this is a picture of obviously a woman Bernstein. Um, now, when we talk about great journalism and we want to kind of attach a suffix to something, it's always something games. You know, what's games was only 50 years ago, and that's the thing we're still relying on. We do we have to move on, and we have to kind of refocus on journalism that counts now. However, despite that, it is also worth remembering that generative AI is only a predictive tool. It cannot think or create yet, as we understand those terms. Now, Bond explained that in some detail, but he also then went on to talk about how we can then take those limitations and actually use them to deliver some real value back to audiences. It's also worth noting that uh, what, uh, gen- what gen AI or generative AI, not general, um, actually is, and essentially it predicts the most likely next word if you think of it in the text format. Um, so it's the average best guess of what goes in. Um, it also doesn't necessarily get nuance, association, or context unless it's very specifically given it, and that's all under the asterisk of yet, um, as already mentioned. So what does this mean? That's the kind of scene setter for where we are and me taking the opportunity to tell you you're all weird. Um, what does this actually mean for the future, particularly of, of kind of media but also kind of marketing and functional more broadly? We've already mentioned jobs. I have to believe there will always be a place for us um, as, as humanity, hopefully, um, until they completely take over. Um, but the creativity in our brains um, cannot be replaced. Um, not ju- because it's not just about following the numbers. Um, you've got to remember that a lot of these AI models will um, argue to their self-learning with our ability to take creative decisions, um, not just in terms of building creative, um, is something that is still sort of innate. Um, you can't necessarily tell a machine um, by, by its nature um, to go against the brain at exactly the right moment in terms of um, brand positioning or immediate contact with the background. And I have to believe again that a human with a good AI will always beat either in silo. Um, so that's where I think the, the assistant, that, um, the idea of it as assistant, um, will be certainly in the short and medium term the, the biggest opportunity. So just remember, um, Gen AI, as I already mentioned, is the best average of the internet or the data that goes in it. Um, it's not necessarily perfect. I've got a, a quick quote here from um, a paper that we wrote actually with um, our, um, our cultural simulation um, within uh, our team, and we released it earlier this year. It's called Very Human Reactions to AI. And really, within that, we wanted to highlight some of the, culture, some of the cultural drivers um, that really shape our views around AI. So, this fear about losing jobs and losing our position and being ultimately overtaken are not necessarily new to AI. Of course, as we've known for coming up on a decade at this point, the big opportunity around AI is to really speed things up and refine some of the outputs. Now, Bond went on to talk about how Ipsos sees that opportunity. So if you take the example of a simpler example, or a simplified example, of simply writing an article, 
is the ability to go from notes to a first draft in seconds rather than minutes or hours. And that rate of speed will just fundamentally change the amount of content that's there. Yes, the amount of noise and potential disinformation is, is lost that from as well. I'm trying to keep it slightly more positive. Um, but uh, it, will, it will fundamentally change that speed. Also, within that though, that leads us to focus on developing the input to all the notes and, uh, and content things that go into that um, AI system, and then refining the outputs as well. And again, I have to believe that's where our place will be really valued. Because these things are not perfect, um, certainly not yet, um, and understanding all that nuance and context is something that we as humans um, can bring to that as well. So this is another question I get a lot, um, and it's not quite as simple as it's all becoming prompt engineers, um, all the SEO people trying to jump over to prompt engineering, and um, I hate to tell you this, um, but prompts will clearly be incredibly important. Um, but it's not. But it, they're also not that complicated. Um, certainly already there's lots of um, really good publicly available um, examples of best practices. At a corporate level, a lot of these a lot of organizations and certainly the AI providers are more than happy to help build them out. So in that article example, you've already got a sort of predefined prompt that brings um, your, um, your style guide and um, some of your language and then you've maybe got a personalization section that brings it to your voice as that particular correspondent or writer. But actually, I was on a panel recently with uh, Emma Thwaites from the Open Data Institute, and she really hits this home, and again, Ross touched on it just now. Uh, education is going to be key. Of course, the word on everybody's lips at the moment, looking forward to 2024 and beyond, is regulation. So Owen Meredith, who is the CEO of the News Media Association, has a few ideas about how we can start getting to grips with regulation and making sure that we are prepared for when that does finally come down the pipe. It's a huge, huge issue. Um, and I think regulators, um, intellectual property owners, creators all around the world are wrestling with this. Uh, I think we've got some good starts with the European AI Act. That's, um, that's going to really help with transparency. Uh, we've just been talking about that on stage here. and uh, It's going to really help content creators understand how their, um, their property, their content is being used by large language models and AI developers. I think by and large, the UK... IP framework um, is fit for purpose for this. We should be able to license um, content so that developers can buy access to our content on terms that we agree with, uh, and then that framework should allow everybody to be rewarded along that um, chain so that there's fair uh, remuneration back to publishers who are generating, fr frankly, the content that these developers really need because it's consistent, it's regular, um, it's fact-checked, um, and provides a real pattern and a, and a language model that is, uh, frankly, authentic. In the live session, he explained that a coordinated approach is vital, which is why the NMA has brought together a collective of publishers and like-minded thinkers to sign up to Principles of AI. In some ways, it's very detailed, in other ways, it's very high level. Um, but I think the reason why we felt it's important to, to sign up to something uh, on a global basis is clearly AI doesn't respect geographical boundaries. So um, whatever regulators uh, choose to do, whatever developers choose to do, um, it would be helpful if um, there was a coordinated approach, particularly in respect of intellectual property, which is uh, the fundamental uh, concern for me and uh, our members, is making sure that um, wherever AI is concerned, particularly when it's trained and uh, when large language models are trained on um, journalistic content, and we know they are 
often trained and heavily dependent on journalistic content because you've got consistency of language, mm. um, you've got good sentence structure, you've got reliability of um, facts and information. So they are trained on uh, journalistic content, but there's no transparency over that and how much of our content has been consumed in our labs. Mm. Uh, there's no uh, recognition of that and there's no reward. So I think those are the And no transparency how it's used in the answer, right? No, exactly. Um, and I think that's the real challenge. I mean, some of the um, the way that AI is potentially going to revolutionise search uh, by providing users with an immediate answer that's often mashed together from three news articles, which may actually come up with the wrong answer as a result of mashing yeah. together three yeah. news articles, but then not attributing uh, those news articles. It's really quite terrifying what could happen. As an example of that, he cited the fact that when ChatGPT first really came to light at the start of the year, or really towards the end of 2022, some wanted to keep it unregulated to quote-unquote unleash growth. But now that has changed as wider recognition about what actually goes into the training of a large language model have come to light. Um, we've, seen, we've seen all sorts of strange things with hallucination, uh, articles being completely fabricated and attributed back to um, genuine publishers and people sort of then coming to the publisher saying, well, I can't find this article on your website. So it's not there because it never existed. Um, and actually, newsrooms have spent quite a lot of time uh, and wasted a lot of money as a result trying to trace these things. Um, and similar things in the academic world and uh, colleagues in academic publishing have this problem all the time. They sort of yeah. um, get accused of not having the full database of academic articles because they don't have these things that uh, AI is hallucinating about. Getting regulation right is a tough egg to crack. And of course, if you look across the wider media industry, other regulation hasn't quite gone as well as it might have done. So why should we feel confident that this is going to be any different? Meredith explains. Six or eight months ago, when ChatGPT first came to sort of light and everybody was um, having a bit of a love in, uh, including policymakers who were very keen to sort of liberalise copyright law so that these models could... Um, unleash the innovation in the UK economy and sort of deliver vast swathes of GDP growth. I think politicians uh, quickly came to see that that was very much one side of the argument uh, and that by doing that you would destroy the entire creative economy, which is the fastest growing sector in the UK economy. They've recognised that? Is that I mean, yeah, I think so. I mean, they certainly, they shelved all their proposals um, to liberalise text and data mining. Um, they have uh, come up with some reasonably de detailed frameworks around how they're going to approach um, regulation of AI and the minister last week, I think it was, said uh, the government is in no rush to change uh, intellectual property. So I think we're, we're in a good place, but um, there will inevitably be changes that need to come. And I think there's essentially three elements there. What, what's being stolen from publishers already and used to train these models? What is being used in real time and going forward? Um, and what end product uh, potentially can somebody make, um, as these developers make and monetize effectively? reliant and built on the publisher's content. Um, and if there's huge value in the end product, but they're not paying for, or they're paying for a small fee for the yeah. end product, uh, getting that balance right and ensuring that there's a, uh, a reciprocal uh, value arrangement is important. And from a practical perspective, Meredith went on to explain what he feels publishers can actually do when it comes to regulation and how to use AI in a way that isn't just safe for the brand, but also helps move the conversation on around regulation. That's taken 10 years to get here. We can't wait 10 years um, if we feel we need to regulate in the AI space. And I think one of the areas we probably uh, need to regulate is around transparency and forcing developers to be transparent about what content they are using. But 
good developers, good players should be doing this anyway. And I think um, there is such a thing as good tech, or there should be, um, and tech, tech firms shouldn't just be stealing publishers' content and not telling us. Um, they should be giving us the ability to opt out. They should be transparent about what they're using um, and how that output is generated. It's very much going to be down to individual publishers, and I think there's a bit of a nervousness in the publishing community. You know, when, um, uh, when OpenAI allowed publishers to opt out, um, some publishers have, some publishers haven't. And there's potential advantages or disadvantages of both, and you've got to weigh those up and decide uh, on an individual basis. Um, similarly with, with Google doing, uh, allowing opt-outs as well. But there is, a, there is a huge upside for publishers from getting this right and creating a licensing model that works for developers. Um, that potentially adds a new revenue stream. Uh, we all know that we need multiple revenue streams to create sustainable business models. This is potentially a new one. Um, but there's also a huge opportunity in the newsroom and in general business efficiencies of where we can use AI particularly in the newsroom context, to free up journalists so that they can get out there and do some more of the, the sort of human work that needs to happen. You, you know, you're not going to um, come across the best stories by sitting at your desk uh, necessarily. You need to be able to get out there and uh, get out into the community and find those stories. But can AI do some of the really heavy lifting, such as analysing massive data sets or huge uh, caches of documents that have um, been handed to a journalist? Yes, so you can potentially get to the story quicker and find the patterns using AI. Now, when it comes to recognising the value that journalists still play in an environment where AI is helping them develop stories, we need to be more forceful about the value that journalists and writers have provided when it comes to actually training those models. Now, Lucky Gunasakura, who is co-founder and CEO of Miso.ai, which is effectively a, I suppose, democratised AI service, uh, explains... If you look at today's AI tools, they are largely generating answers on the back of the hard work that journalists and writers have already done, right? And that work is not easy, it's not cheap, and it's not safe often, right? So they deserve to get paid for that. And in many cases, you can see already on like Google's Bard Search or Perplexity AI, you can see that they're writing the answers with some amount of citations on where they source the information in the first place. Well, if they knew where it came from, then they have a forensic chain against which they could actually provide payments to their sources, especially if they're making revenue from that service in the first place. There are models for that, you know, and I think that publishers shouldn't be passive as a result in arguing for their fair share, right? They're the ones who are the trusted sources of information. They need to be able to do that work. They should be paid accordingly, but they're not going to if they're not fighting for it. And then, like I said earlier, putting a gun on the table, whether that's lawsuits or, or even them saying, for instance, that they're going to go build their own alternatives as a collective. So, yeah. Given the development of so many of the AI tools which publishers are already using, it's no surprising that we're looking to open source solutions to a lot of these problems. But Gunnar Sakurai explained that the actual mass level of distribution doesn't necessarily reflect that value in a way that smaller use cases do. And why do I say that? Well, this is the first lesson we learned building answers. AI unit economics really, really matter. If you flash forward a year from now, I think we're going to realize that a lot of these experiments that we're doing with AI, they worked well at the small scale, and they became wholly uneconomical at the, at the, the actual mass distribution level, at the mass adoption level. 
in our follow-up episode, we're going to be hearing from some publishers directly about some case studies about how they have been integrating and experimenting with AI at a company level. But for now, we have to acknowledge the fact that there is some trepidation and fear within media companies as journalists and writers look to these tools and say, well, look, is this going to effectively make me obsolete? The next couple of sessions discussed what publishers need to consider internally. And so while we go into more specifics in the next episode, this is a great primer from some fantastic speakers. So Kevin Donnellan, who is the director of Explainable, says he sees a huge disconnect between official company policy on Gen AI and how workers are actually engaging with those tools on the ground. And he argues that that's something really worth addressing. Yeah, there's, um, there's, there's a disconnect in terms of views around how public will perceive our output as journalists and as publishers. But it's also a disconnect between journalists and their bosses, I think, uh, a lack of trust there as well. So it's, you know, if, if you've laid out a scenario where a publisher can save 100 hours of the equivalent of 100 people's nine hours, journalists will think, um, oh great, that gives us time, freezes up time to do our proper work. But there's a worry, there's a fear based in reality a lot of the time that the, the owner of a media company might see that and think, oh great, that allows me to fire 100 people. And it's that kind of mistrust and that kind of disconnect that I think is fueling a lot of the conversations and a lot of the disjointed conversations around how we're adopting AI. Ultimately, he says it comes down to a need for honesty within the company, both from the journalist level and at their manager's level as well. It may well be that journalists are experimenting with AI tools in a way that genuinely does deliver some tangible value back to the business, even though it may contravene some of those internal AI guidelines. I've been to plenty of conferences over the last few, um, over the last few um, months where people representing major news organizations have said, well, we're, we're going to op- uh, operate a kind of wait-and-see approach when it comes to AI, and we're not, we're not going to come up with any blanket policy, or if there is a blanket policy, it's don't touch AI tools. And then you have people on the ground who, and it's not always like junior staffers, it's, it's, it's sometimes kind of mid-level editors who are saying, well, the policy is we're not touching anything, but I found that you know, a hundred-page legal document can be synthesized quite well by GPT-4. So we're doing that, and it's not—it's not official policy. It's sometimes it's not even explicitly banned, but there hasn't been an honest conversation about how that work is done. And it's, I'm not saying this as a oh, we need to clamp down on people secretly using AI. It's about—it's about we need to make sure that there's kind of robust policies in place so people can have honest conversations. So kind of being honest and saying, look, these generative AI tools are, are taking, you know, maybe it's 40%, maybe it's only 5% of your work off your desk. Being able to kind of talk to an editor, being able to talk to your boss and say, look, it's isn't free of time. How can we how can we work with that better? But for editors not to immediately fill that time with more, with more work and to say, okay, this is great. You can actually, for the first time in 20 years, take a lunch break. Lucky Ganasakura agrees, but also notes that it's important to make the case for ROI when developing any internal AI strategy, as that will help it get over the line. Yeah, I think AI needs to put more money into the newsroom than it takes out. You know, I think like otherwise it's just a nice experiment. It's actually not sustainable and it will eventually get cut or something else will get cut in service of it, which is probably even worse. So, I mean... 
being able to apply AI in ways that actually drive more reader engagement, drive more revenue, improve and strengthen or even upgrade the underlying business model, I think that those are all like the core objectives to think through when you think about AI and publishing. Roxanne Fisher is Director of Digital Content Strategy at Immediate Medium. We're going to go into this in greater depth in the next episode, but for now, here she is explaining about the journey that Immediate Media went on around that. Yeah, when we've spoken to people, what they appreciated most about the journey we've been taking on this year is having the permission to experiment with AI. Um, I don't think it's uh, the case at all media organisations at the moment that you're encouraged to use these tools. Um, but we also have given them guidelines to help them use them safely and carefully so they can kind of move forward and not only develop skills for the company but for themselves to be able to um, use AI, be at the forefront of, of what's going on and know that they are doing it in a way that isn't going to damage the reputation of, of the brands um, that we all love. And her advice for other publishers, especially those who are stretched in terms of resources, whether that be monetary or in terms of workforce, is to practice what you preach and actually give people that space to experiment. The starting point for us was really, I think, having people um, who are willing to get stuck in. So we, we were using the tools ourselves, and I wouldn't call myself an expert in generative AI, but I know enough to know what's reasonable to ask of people. Um, so I think kind of... Uh, walk, talk, walking, walking the walk, and uh, <laughs> talking the talk, and um, yeah, kind of practicing what you preach is really important. I think giving people the space and the opportunity to experiment. So that's not only giving them permission, but it's giving them access to the right tools, um, giving them time to actually learn. And we found bringing people from different departments across the business together to share learnings and, and, and working with people who they haven't worked with before was really helpful. That really, um, especially in our experimentation days when people worked on projects together, um, AI projects, I think that was really, really helpful. They, a lot of feedback we got was they really appreciated that. And, um, yeah, and I, I think building in some frameworks and, and easy ways for people to get started is a, is a really important thing. Jan Thorsen is CEO of Labrador, which is a CMS which has been working on integrating AI tools into their products. So that's everything from SEO-optimized headlines and tagging. And Jan is emphatic that these tools are there to help but not to replace journalists en masse. Right now it's really good at, uh, at uh, making a summary of a text, uh, but, uh, but I don't think the AI, if, if you are working in a local or national newspaper, everybody's talking about AI that, that can produce articles, but they don't. AI is not, can't find the news. The news is written by the journalists, so right now it's just uh, like a calculator. A calculator can help you to... Uh, use numbers more easily, like a spreadsheet. I don't think you write that if you use a spreadsheet. This, this number is made, made by a spreadsheet. And in fact, it's ever more vital to actually keep humans part and parcel of the conversation. So even when we use AI tools to enhance our journalism, the ideation, the generation, that all needs to come from a very, very human source. Tim Bond went into greater detail here. Think of the use cases within, within organizations and within the industry that can place AI as the assistant first rather than replace people. And um, we're, we're in such a call center example, which is um, you know, a, a simplified one, but where can, where can the human and an AI do a better job than 
um, than um, just simply replacing. The short-term benefits are that, uh, as I mentioned, the ability to work at higher scale, free humans up to do more nuanced jobs um, as well. There's also risk mitigation in that, because it means you have a human betting in control and looking over that AI, so it's not doing things, um, as we've already seen, various, various uh, chatbots put onto uh, Twitter, I refuse to call it the other thing, right? Um, the, uh, and other social platforms where they have AI and they go off and this a tangent. But also long term, this allows you to see where AI could potentially step in more, um, or where AI probably shouldn't, uh, because we need to we need to keep that kind of human in the tree, um, or that's human and part of the, of the cycle as well. The other is the art versus the science, and so this comes up a lot when we think, start to think about creativity within data, um, and. But it's, it's not really such a binary choice. Um, the future will, more than ever, prove that there is art in the science. Um, as a data researcher, um, I, I definitely see that. Um, but there's also science in the art. Um, so it's going to be that mix of the knowing, I mentioned that assisted example, of actually knowing when to make a decision that doesn't follow the data, and when the whole market and everybody's going one way for a standard format, or the whole business wants to go one way, and actually you've just got a feeling. That if we did that, it could be a bit different, it could be unique, and it could see the opportunity. Um, there's not really a way, as far as I know yet, um, to truly train an AI to do that, rather than just um, at random, which I hope our intuitions are based on those of randomness. Well, we must embrace, we must embrace both this, um, but also its limitations and restrictions that offers too. Because um, actually some of the restrictions that technology puts on us, um, I know from some of the work I've done previously with uh, the financial services sector, some of the uh, some of the very strict limitations they have there actually breed breed a ground that they know exactly where their walls are, so they're able to innovate much faster and quicker in new ways than, than any other sector. Matt Cruz is co-founder of Martin Trip Associates, which is a media specialized recruitment company. He explains more about why humans are so necessary as we actually start integrating AI into our working practices. If you're in consumer media, your audience wants to be entertained by humans, they want to be informed by humans, they want to be enlightened by humans, they want to forge emotional connections with humans. And in B2B, AI can enable you to do some really incredible things, not least in data journalism. Um, and even there in B2B, you're likely where the human connection is perhaps slightly less important sometimes, you could create some significant trust issues with your market if you hand too much work over to machine. So, how do you avoid those? But of course, everyone knows that AI would be able to make you, enable you to do things that have not previously have been possible before, and not just faster and more efficient. So, what will AI enable well? And what will it enable bad? What will enable well, I think, has been very comprehensive and covered elsewhere uh, today. Um, you know, the automation of tedious routine tasks, massively increased efficiency, the ability to uh, absorb and make recommendations based on vast amounts of data, the ability to do creative work that had previously been too time consuming, too expensive. But the, the consensus from the experts that I've been speaking to is that you know there are, well there will be some back office and admin jobs that can be lost First and foremost, they are seeing AI as a tool, as an enhancement to people's work, rather than as a replacement for them. 
as is the new jobs, the new types of jobs that will be created. <laughs> and I think here the answer lies in things that, that AI does bad. Um, what, what does AI lack? I think everyone knows this. Emotional intelligence, intuition, you know, awareness of context, um, you know, influencing skills, team, you know, how you operate and navigate yourself within an organization. These are things at which humans excel. Or, you know, some people And they are essential leadership qualities as well. Things that we as headhunters are trained to look out for in, in interviews. And I think it's those emotionally intelligent human qualities. Uh, but once upon a time, we've been seen as slightly touchy-feely and being essential. Those are going to be essential leadership qualities moving forward. Regardless, we cannot ignore the fact that AI is within newsrooms already and it will continue to be a bigger part as the years go by. More than that, though, everything is speeding up, as Alan Hunter explains. You know, I think the best way from a journalistic point of view is to think of AI as a fast-forward buzzer. You know, the things that were happening um, in the next five years are going to happen in the next year. And the things that were a decade away are going to be coming next year or the year after that. Um, what we're going to have certainly more bot-based journalism. Um, like I said, we shouldn't be sentimental or naive about what we do and the value that people place on it. Um, bots will do that very, very well. But also, I think that you know that opens up an opportunity for more human-made journalism, which is a good thing. Um, I think there'll be few news providers, but as we were talking, uh, it's the, the underestimating the, the overestimating the short-term change, but underestimating the long-term change. I think this will take time because we have great brands, you know, far more newspapers, newspaper brands that have survived in the UK than were predicted 10 or 20 years ago when the incident started. I think this will again be the case now. Um, however, there will be a new generation of publishers out there. Now suddenly the kind of the, the problems with the business model of existing publishers will be wiped out by you know, new people coming in and being able to do things a lot quicker with a lot smaller newsrooms. So that is it for this first part of our two-parter looking at AI in the newsroom. Thanks to MX3 for allowing us to go on this journey with them. And also thank you to the sponsors, FT Strategies, InsureAds, Labrador CMS, Miso, SubX, and Zawara. It's our hope that by the end of the next episode, we're going to have a much rounder picture of everything to do with AI and its use in the newsroom, whether that be in helping develop business objectives or finding new revenue sources, all the way through to how you actually embed AI and its experimental culture into your organization. There's also an accompanying written report which is going to be going live on the 19th of December. We'll link to it from Voices.media as we always do, or you can find it on MediaMakersMeet.com. But for now, thank you so much for listening. It's been a fantastic season of Media Voices, and all it remains for me to say is have a great Christmas and a happy new year.